Welcome to the Interop, the show which talks about the technologies that are powering the interchain. My name is Sebastien Couture, and today I'm here with Sergey Gorbanov, who is CEO of Axelar. Hey, Sergey. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for joining me. Uh, in uh, you know, in in our sort of you know quest to understand uh, cross-chain technologies and blockchain bridging, we are doing quite a few uh, interviews with uh, projects uh, that are in this space. And, you know, we can't uh, have a proper bridge series without uh, talking with Axelar because they are certainly uh, one of the biggest and certainly one of the most recognizable uh, actors in the space. So we've got a full list of things to discuss here today. We're going to be getting deep into the weeds of Axelar and how it works. Uh, but first, uh, if you enjoy this channel, please consider subscribing and hitting the bell. Uh, so that you get uh, notifications whenever we do live streams, particularly on Thursday. And also consider subscribing, uh, sorry, consider staking uh, Evmos to our Evmos validator. You'll find the link for that in the show notes. I also want to let you know that I'm going to be attending Cosmoverse next week in Medellin. And I'm super excited about it. I'm sure lots of people uh, in the Cosmos space who listen to this podcast are also going. Um, I think you'll probably have some people from your team there as well. Um, and uh, the Nebular Summit uh, conference and Anoma are teaming up to put on a side event on September 27th at 5 p.m. It is called Interchain Travel, and we're going to be exploring all sorts of interesting topics around Interchain, Web3, privacy, security, and consensus. Uh, we have a pretty stellar lineup of speakers uh, lined up for this event. So Ethan Butman of Cosmos and Informal uh, Systems will be speaking. Susanna Adams, who's project lead at IBC. Uh, Zach Mannion, who needs no introduction. Uh, Yelena from Informal Systems. Felix from Chorus One. And the list goes on. Sunny Agarwal, uh, Adrian Brink, and so on. So if you want to attend that, there are still tickets remaining. And it's free. And there will also be a shuttle from the Cosmoverse um, venue. And so you can get your tickets for that over at interchaintravel.xyz. Putting that right here, uh, interchaintravel.xyz. And we'll also leave a link for that in the show notes. So do attend if you're in Medellin. It'd be great to see you. Uh, with that, yeah, Sergey, how are you doing? How you doing? Um, you're in uh, New York for, for Mainnet right now. That's right. Yeah, we have uh, quite a few folks from the team here. Um, have a booth. Uh, we're doing a side event a couple of days ago, so it's yeah, pretty pretty fun location. Yeah, I was talking to someone earlier about like I remember um, uh, you know being a moderator on a mainnet panel. You know when it was still a you know the first one when it was an online event like during COVID, and you know they were just kind of putting this conference together, and now it's like this massive thing. And uh, I've actually never been to a physical one, but I'd love to uh, at, at some point. So you, you were on the test net before it became main. Yeah, I was on the test net. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I remember like I was talking to the team and I'm pretty sure I didn't do the panel there, but yeah. Um, and like, it was right when, you know, like Hopin was taking off and like all these conferencing platforms. And it's just like this, you know, I just get these, you know, memories of like entering the new world. Right. And like, yeah. but um, uh, I don't know about that though, but you know, so yeah. Tell, tell me a little bit of your background and, and why you chose to work on, on, uh, on this problem of, cross-chain uh, communication? Yeah, I mean, my background is kind of a mix of uh, distributed systems and cryptography. Um, you know, I worked on things like uh, software-defined networking. I studied formal cryptography at MIT in grad school, doing a lot of, uh, you know, protocol design, system design work. Um, and then, you know, afterwards, I helped to uh, design and take uh, Algorand project to the market um, with my co-founder, Jorgos, uh, you know, Silvio, a few other folks from MIT. So that was pretty fun. Uh, but then after launching Algorand, we just saw like an array of other, you know, beautiful ecosystems being developed and we kind of realized that kind of connected them together and providing a unified seamless experience for the users to, to interact with all of these applications being built in different blockchains. It's going to be, um, you know, a must to, to continue increasing the adoption and simplifying the user experiences. So look to the kind of solution space, understand there are a lot of problems, a lot of gaps that will still need to be filled in and, you know, decided to focus on this problem uh, kind of full time. So, and it's been a pretty fun uh, journey the last few years. And when did XLR launch actually? 
So yeah, the network went live uh, kind of early this year, around uh, February timeframe. Um, so the network has been live uh, for, uh, since then. You know, we connected like 24 different chains. Uh, you know, everything from you know Ethereum, Osmosis, uh, kind of Cosmos, Polygon, Avalanche, and the list goes on. We did like over, I think, 1.2 billion in cross-chain volume to date. Um, you know, over 200 and um, over 200,000 transactions. I think 180,000 like wallets have been connected through this ecosystem. So it's yeah, pretty pretty exciting. Yeah, I, mean, I I use it like a semi several times a week, and yeah, the experience is like yeah, it's it's pretty seamless. It, it feels um, yeah, it feels very seamless to just you know. Uh, connect your your destination wallet and the wallet where you're connecting from and and it just works and now i mean i i primarily use it with osmosis and now the integration is just so much better now that there's this uh osmosis integration built in right right into osmosis so you don't even have right. to go to the satellite um ui you just in, in osmosis you hit the withdrawal the Axelar uh, window pops up. You connect your MetaMask wallet or whatever wallet you want to send those tokens to, and it, yeah, it's it's like really fantastic. I think like this is really the direction in which UX, the UX needs to go. And and I think yeah, even one point on that, right? Like uh, for for things like you know USDC um, assets, like you actually don't have to send them from like a MetaMask wallet, right? So I think the kind of the beauty of what we have built is that you get this sort of deposit address at, at osmosis, and then you can send um you know a deposit there from like coinbase right from binance or anywhere you have those tokens and then even though they will go through ethereum they'll go through axel they will go through you know ibc and it like arrive at osmosis like you're never going to be exposed to like a single step you never ha even have to pay gas like on ethereum for it yeah yeah i mean yeah the, the, i think the user experience question around bridges is uh is really a, a crucial one and it's it's a topic that has been coming up you know, all the conversations I've had with you know, people bring, b building kind of multi-chain uh, composability and, and, and communication uh, protocols. Um, but yeah, before before we talk to that, about that, I, like I want to ask my, my burning question, which is, you know, why is Axelar secure? You know, and um, yeah, uh, what's, what's your pitch here for like why people should use this bridge and not another bridge and why it's not going to fail like so many others? Yeah. I mean, at the very core of it, the security comes down through achieving it through strong decentralization properties, right? We have seen it over and over in the space that the solutions that remain kind of robust are the ones that are decentralized. So at the very core of it, Axel Network is a decentralized network powered by Tendermint, you know, and, and the kind of Cosmos SDK. So it has an open validator set. Anybody can join, anybody can participate, anybody can send transactions, right? Anybody can, can use it. And, uh, you know, a lot of other uh, kind of Gen Zero uh, bridging protocols, they're all centralized, right? They have kind of two out of three multi-sigs or they have like some federated oracles, guardians, whatever whatever they call them, you know, and you you kind of uh, rely then on those individual deployments for, for trust. And like an Axel, you're relying on the protocol security, right? And the decentralization uh, through the validator set. So that's one thing. That's that's the very core start, right? If you have to have decentralization, you have to have security. That's how you get robustness. And from there, uh, security really is a combination of kind of good engineering practices, rigorous audits, security and, and safety features. And, you know, I think if you look at it, uh, we have an array of all of those mechanisms we've been, we've been working through, kind of investing heavily in it, and we'll continue doing so. Uh, you're on mute. What are the trust assumptions that one needs to make when using Axelar? And so maybe like to put this in context, you know, that, you know, we, there's obviously like diff different types of bridging technologies. I think like on, on one side, on one extreme, you have maybe like the super high trust uh, bridge. And, you know, you, you gave an example, right? Like a, a multi-sig would be um, a super high high trust bridge where the assumption is that you trust, you know, these participants. And then on the, on the other extreme, you maybe have something like IBC where you don't trust the, there, there is no bridge. Effectively, you trust the security of the other chain because it, you know, it is a chain that is verifying another chain's consensus. Um, Axelar sits somewhere in the middle. What trust assumptions does one have to make? Um, and at so like different layers of the stack, let's say of the, the consensus stack. Yeah, no, makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, Okay, let, let's say, let's first of all, I think like separate, right? Like trust assumptions of 
the like the underlying security model, right? And trust assumptions that come with implementation. Because um, you know, I think like for instance, if you if you talk about IBC, right? Uh, while kind of in a pairwise world, right? You have the ideal security, right? Where everything is verified through the light clients. Um, you know, if you were to implement some of this logic, like let's say like in, in smart contracts, then your sort of trusted computing base and the trust assumption is going to be that this logic that validates consensus implemented in a smart contract is actually correct, right? <laughs> Which is actually a pretty big like code base that you're going to have to trust, right? Um, so Axelor, you know, kind of a, like you said, I think it, it sits kind of a closer to the IBC model where, you know, from Axelor to other chains that we connect, it's actually similar type of like client verification, right? Where Axel assigns messages and they're posted on the uh, interconnected chains. And then those interconnected chains kind of a know of the validator set of Axel. So they just kind of verify those messages. Um, and then on the other end, when the messages are outgoing from some of the chains will connect, Axel validators run a consensus mechanism, right? That validates the messages. And, uh, um, uh, you know, the majority of the validators have to co-sign and authorize every request. And then those messages can be forwarded to the um, to the destination chain, right? So mm-hmm. so, so the, the difference between, let's say, like an IBC connection and, uh, you know, an Axel connection is that, um, you know, one-way connections are about the same. You have about the same trust guarantees, but the, the reverse connections is because we don't want to have to parse this kind of complicated light client logic then we run a consensus, right, uh, at Acceler, and then you then you rely on the um, security of the Acceler validator set, right, to authorize the messages and uh, uh, finalize them. And I guess like the other point to to mention though, um, even though with things like IBC you actually get uh, strong security in a pairwise world, but most of the time, you know, when you look at networks that will have kind of a millions of connections down the line you are probably going to be trusting some intermediate network to process your messages anyways, right? Um, and you're going to be relying on some intermediate message because, you know, we can't have kind of quadratic number of connections across a million chains, right? So you're always going to have hubs. Um, Can you expand so on that a little bit? Yeah, so let's kind of... That's, some, that's something I'm not actually... I, I wasn't actually aware of or I hadn't considered. Yeah, so if you take a step back, right, uh, you know, I am a strong believer in a multi-chain world where we'll have, you know, thousands or, you know, millions of chains down the line, right? And then you have to understand what are the possible topologies in this multi-chain world, right? And, and consider two extremes. Extreme number one, everybody connects to each other directly, okay? Yeah. In that extreme, you're going to end up with, um, you know, kind of a quadratic number of connections across everybody, <laughs> you know, divide by two, Um which is completely impractical to scale, right? Like that's a, a astronomically high number. Everybody's going to have to manage their own IBC channels, relayers, and so on and so forth, right? Uh, so, you know, the internet is not connected that way. No large network can be connected in, in direct uh, connections. Okay. So, and then you have the other extreme where everything is connected through like a one hub, right? Um, that's another extreme. Again, like uh, you have strong properties that, you know, every connection made to the hub uh, is automatically connected with everything else, but you can't have, you know, a million chains connected to one chain, right? Like, you know, this is, um, it's still going to be hard to manage. So the reality is that probably we're going to end up with the hybrid model, right? With a mesh where you have some direct connections, some hubs of transportation, so-called, right? And whenever you then communicate in that model, your traffic will probably go through some type of a hub or network that you're going to have to trust anyways. <laughs> Right. Um, and so that's, you know, um, in that model, then, uh, you know, you will probably will be taking assumptions that these transportation hubs are sort of secure in the middle that process your messages. You're going to be trusting its validator set. Um, and, um, um, you know, and in that case, you actually, the security that you get will be pretty similar to what you get with Axler today anyways. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I hadn't considered that as, as the scales, like that, um, yeah, the, the the sort of as we have more uh, sovereign independent chains that want to connect to other chains via protocols like IBC, you just end up with this massive number of connections where every chain is wanting to connect to every other chain. And you have like this kind of quadratic uh, expansion of the number of, of connections. And um, I mean, I guess in the real world, that's also not how, you know, you know if you look at something like 
um, networking, you know, like it, like the, the backbone of the internet, we don't have every computer connecting to every other computer. Uh, yeah. We do use this kind of hub and spoke model where your computer connects to the ISP, the ISP connects to some sort of, uh, right. um, what do you call it? Like a um, level three kind of traffic routing center, and then those connect to each other. And so we do have multiple hops until you, you get somewhere else. And I think it makes sense to look at blockchain transactions also um, as evolving in, in this uh, in this direction. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and that's why, like, right, like, I mean, the way that I think about it is that we're sort of building these kind of, you know, airports and air traffic control system, right, where um, kind of it's the network that's been designed to deal with, you know, security compromises to deal with, um, you know, interchain communication. Uh, and so all the protocol features of this hub are then kind of optimized to deal with cross-chain messaging, right, to guarantee strong liveness, robustness, and, you know, UX properties, Um and um, underlying connections, we actually support, you know, IBC, right? Because actually it's based on a Tendermint chain. So you can connect IBC. If more chains, you know, support IBC, great, we'll connect it. But there's a lot more than the security of cross-chain communication comes down to a lot more than what does my connection between A and B look like, right? Um, like underlying protocol can continue improving and it should continue improving and the verification should continue improving. But when it comes to really global cross-chain communication, it's really about thinking about like, what are the network properties we need to provide to deliver those better guarantees at the end of the day? And it's it's way beyond like what is an individual like pairwise connection needs to look like. Mm. Okay. Um, well, so what chains what chains does Axelar currently support natively? Yeah, I mean, the, I think over twenty three chains have been live, right? Uh, Ethereum, um, Avalanche, you know, Polygon, uh, Moonbeam. And sort of Polkadot ecosystem, Osmosis, uh, Cosmos Hub, Secret Network, um, you know, Stargaze uh, went live recently as well. Ecojira um, is live, Juno is live. So, yeah, uh, you can go to kind of axelorscan.io and uh, you'll get a pretty good look of uh, what's been activated. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's like, uh, I feel like the number of chains is growing all the time. Um, and yeah, I want to talk about the, um, the, um, the network architecture, and so the you're know, looking at it from maybe the the lower lower layers of the stack, right, and the the network itself. So the validators, um, can you talk a little bit about what their role is, what they're actually doing? So I understand there's like some multi-party computations that's going on when they're um, where they're, they're signing transactions, but then individual chains are also verifying. Um, uh, transactions, you know, in their in their own individual chains, and then relaying those to Axelar. Can you kind of describe all of these interactions from the bottom up? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think we actually have a pretty nice tech diagram. Let me see if I can quick, kind of quickly pull it out and walk through it. I think it'll be easier. Um, let me see. Yeah, can I share my screen quickly? I think you should be able to. Okay, let's try that. There All right, can you see this? Yes. Yeah, awesome. So yeah, if you go to our blog, Excel Network blog, and there's a, a kind of an article on the introduction to the Excel Network. Um, so high level, this is how things work, right? Um, we allow developers to build anywhere they want, right? Uh, meaning that you can deploy your application, let's say on Ethereum, and you want to go cross-chain. So how could you go cross-chain? We'll expose an API, essentially, and an SDK that allows you to talk to uh, what we call as a gateway, okay? A gateway you can think of it as a local kind of a router that sits that allows you to send messages to other chains. Okay, so same as like at home, you have a router, you can send messages to the router, what's going to happen with those messages, you know, infrastructure underneath it will take them and deliver it anywhere they need to go, right. And so in the same way, sort of these gateways are kind of objects or smart contracts that you can send the messages to. And then underneath it, there is uh, what we call the cross-chain gateway protocol, which is uh, the protocol that Axel is based on. It, uh, it effectively does three functions. So A, validators collectively observe these gateways and then vote on events 
from them, right? So they run a consensus protocol uh, to finalize the state of those events. Um, subsequently, when they reach a, an agreement of what needs to happen with that event, they um, you know run like a multi-party protocols to collectively uh, kind of co-sign and authorize a message that then can be relayed and posted to the destination gateway on the destination chain, right? So in a simple example, if you token, if you send in tokens from Ethereum to Avalanche, then the message to the gateway is, you know, send some USDC, for instance, right? Uh, that message is then finalized by the by the protocol. Validators collectively sign it, um, produce a message that anybody can take from the Axel network and relay to the destination chain on Avalanche, post on the gateway, and from there, kind of the application logic kicks in to you know transfer that token to the user wallet or invoke an application call or perform a cross chain call um, and uh, things like that. So that's that's a very high level. Okay, that, that's really clear, and, and and I'd like to maybe stop on on each of these uh, each of these layers and 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 dive into each aspect. So um, at the application layer, you know, the application layer, I think we could think about, um, you know, the basic level would be something like Axel or satellite, right? It's like some system, some kind of token transfer mechanism. But at the most more complex layer, it could be an integration in osmosis, for example, where directly in the application, you have the ability to send tokens or make contract calls to another chain. So think of it as like, you're in, you're in osmosis, you want to withdraw tokens to, to Ethereum. Uh, that application is what you interact with. And it is where, where you choose to say, I want to send these tokens over here. Uh, but it could also be something more complex, like hey, um, I want to interact with this contract or I want to interact with some application on another chain by perhaps voting with my tokens uh, or you know, doing some other sort of you know, more like messaging style transaction rather than a, um, a, a, a token transfer style transaction. Um, the, the gateway, these are contracts that are deployed on each individual chain. Is that correct? Yeah, so for, you know... Um... Chains that have smart contracts, there are smart contracts. For chains that don't have contracts directly, let's say Cosmos, some Cosmos chains, right? Then it kind of goes through an IBC channel. So it's not quite the gateway, but even IBC channels, they serve an account, right? On chain that's created. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And so let's let's just look at kind of EVM or smart contract chains for a moment. I'd like to talk about the IBC stuff first. So you have a contract mm -hmm. over on, um, say, on Ethereum or on Avalanche or... Uh, on Solana, I suppose, and that contract, the is is it right that the validators in the Axelar network are um, hold as a multi-sig key, as a multi-party computation threshold key, um, the signing key for that contract, or some sort of admin key to to interact with that contract? Is that correct? That that's correct, right? Like, so the validators um, effectively have a key that shared across them, right? That key, you know, cannot be authorized by any single validator, um, but a majority of the validators, when they, you know, sign a message, that message can be posted to the gateway and executed, right? Or validated in some, in, in some sense. So, so the network validates messages, right? And then you have application logic that says, if the message is validated by Axelor, do X, right? And mm. so that that is sort of application la layer logic that then do X can be anything from, you know, minting and and a contract call and so on and so forth. Mm. So, the, so the validators effectively are engaging in a big multi-party computation game at all times where they're receiving messages from each of the, of the chains. Um, um, one, I guess when a validator on the Axelor network uh, is including transactions in blocks, what he's actually doing is saying, these are transactions that I've read sort of in my kind of mempool. Uh, I've ordered those transactions and um, put them in this block. And then as a validator, I propose all of these transactions for all of the validators together to sign a multi-party computation effectively that is executing the transaction on the gateway chain. Yep, that, that's correct, right? Um, and I think, uh, you know, for those of you, for instance, that are familiar, uh, you know, with uh, kind of a, an IBC model is actually pretty similar, right? You know, an IBC model, you, you still have, Kind of consensus. A consensus is nothing more than a collection of validators that kind of collectively co-sign a block, <laughs> right? Mm. And then you have IBC connections that you know verify those those blocks. So it's it's, it's pretty similar in this case that actual validators or produce a block, right, or a batch of messages, and you can relay that block to the destination gateway and 
and it would um, and it would verify that the, that the correct validators have signed it. Like it passes the certain threshold, and and then you you can execute it. Okay, and and what's the threshold for this multi-party computation? Yeah, so great question. So we actually implemented um, recently a mechanism called like quadratic voting, right? Um, that allows us to uh, keep on increasing the decentralization of the network and keep on increasing the threshold. Um, right now, the threshold is like sixty percent of the quadratic votes uh, of the validators. So practically, that means that you know over two dozen validators at least have to co-sign, you know, every message. Mm, okay, interesting, and. So I, I think from from the point of view of like a smart contract chain to a smart contract chain, um, we we've covered that. What happens when uh, dealing with an IBC chain? Is it just that Axelar is is connected to IBC routes for all of these chains and is effectively minting? So let's say we want to send you know USDC from Ethereum to uh, Osmosis. Osmosis is a IBC chain, and so therefore you're kind of minting uh, a, a representation of that token on the Axelar network and then sending that token via IBC to uh, Osmosis, right? Correct, right? So this is back to my point where kind of a interoperability is really more than, um, you know, what a pairwise connection looks like. And so one of the core functions that Axelar network does is this, what we call as a translation layer, right? Meaning that you have a messages that are arriving in certain format you want to send those messages to other chains that have a very different message format, whether or not it's IBC or something else, right? So how do you do that? And the, that's where kind of the Axel network takes this functionality and says, well, okay, I can actually translate, you know, a message from Ethereum to a message to IBC. The way that I do it is I simulate that message on Axler, right? Uh, so if it's a token mint, then we'll mint it like on Axler, and then you can you can route it through the kind of native protocol within those ecosystems, um, you know, from there. So um, in that case, yes, there's a translation layer that happens effectively between those IBC messages, right, and EVM messages, and acts as a sort of simulator that allows you to do the, the translation in the middle. Yeah, so th this works for things that are fairly standard for, like, for instance, sending sending tokens, right? So you, you you're gonna you're gonna create some representation of that that token uh, on Axelar and then send it send it either way. But for things that are, um, I, I guess more generic where I guess maybe in the future when Cosmos chains have this interchain accounts um, uh, model, you know, chains might have very unique messages and um, like some Ethereum dApp could, you know, want to interact with the Cosmos chain, but it's like a very specific sort of message from that point on, then there's just like um, a direct passing of that message and, because I mean, because otherwise it just feels like Axler would have would have to integrate like so many different message types when a lot of messages might be non-standard. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense, right? Like, yeah. So on our gateways, we effectively expose three functions right now, right? You can send a token, you can send a message, or you can send you know a message with a token, right? Um, and I think those are actually like really powerful combination of those three messages. So same thing in Cosmos. Um, for now, within Cosmos, we extend we extend the function to send you know a token. But as you pointed out, through interchain accounts, one of the next uh, you know network upgrades that we'll be doing over the coming months is to extend this send message and then send message with the token function um, to be able to you know translate between IBC messages and interchain accounts uh, to uh, you know, to EVM messages. And yeah, in that case, Axel will relay a generic message, right? And it will be executed at the destination Cosmos chain. Um, there are certain functions that um, people have asked us actually, is like, oh, could you actually put this, you know, message type or like this logic on Axel to make those things easier so we don't have to like deal with on our destination chains? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that would be actually super powerful, um, you know, where effectively you can have like a combination of some logic executing like on Axel to parse some message and then some logic executing at the destination chain to, you know, to, to streamline the communication. Hmm. How does um, Axelor deal with different finality, finality assumptions? And, you know, we've talked about this also on other episodes, I guess now like with Ethereum being proof of stake, some of the more complex finality assumptions maybe are, you know, around more probabilistic finality or are, are, are being phased out. But, you know, I think different chains 
still now have different finality assumptions. Um, how does it deal with that? Yeah, I mean, on the high level, um, Axler implements what we call as like a finality gadget that can be tuned in depending on the you know parameter of the network to to finalize transactions. So um, the validators for every chain decide what the finality rule looks like. Uh, for EVM chains, you know, you have to wait for a certain number of blocks, for instance, right, of a message. Yeah. So for, for Ethereum, there is like a finalization tag you can call. For Avalanche, you know, you can wait for like one block and then you can consider your transaction as finalized. And so, yeah, depending on EVM chain, it's sort of a configuration parameter that gets deployed um, with, um, you know, with the finality rule. And then, you know, your latency and your everything else is then sort of a function of that um, of that finality. Let me actually share this very quickly because I think this is pretty powerful as well. So if you go to, you know, Axler Scan, which is our, um, you know, Explorer, right? You can actually see different, how different finalities of different chains affect latency of the cross-chain messages. So it's like Axler Scan, like general message passing. And so you can see like from Avalanche, you know, to Moonbeam transactions take, you know, on average, like a little bit over a minute, a minute and a half. So from Binance more chain, it's like two minutes, right? Then, you know, kind of interesting. A, a yeah. difference from there. We actually expose like very rigorous statistics around it. Um, you can see kind of average time execution from every different chain. So Ethereum is the slowest uh, and, you know, the, the transition to <laughs> proof of stake did not help that. Uh, I think it actually really it, it's, it's even slower now, right? Uh, on average, because you're you're waiting for like 64 to um, uh, to 96 blocks until and um, kind of two epochs have passed. And so in reality, right. the, the latency from Ethereum has actually increased. In okay, interesting. I hadn't considered that. Um, so d does does are also, or will, does it, or will it also provide a callback? So, you know, if you have a application calling a message and that application wants to respond, so in a, in a sort of interchain queries, interchain accounts uh, fashion, as it's been you know, uh, proposed, would you be able to have a return back from the application? Yeah, great. We already have return of the application. We actually have applications that are built in with it. So let me, yeah, take a step back. So I think what we're building, right, like is really kind of a, the, you can think of it as sort of the, you know, UDP or TCP IP sort of layer, right? And then from there, you can build all kinds of sort of applications on top of it, right? And I think like callbacks is a type of an application layer protocol that can be built on top of Axler, right? So it's not even that we have to provide anything for that. Um, any application can instantiate it. You know, we have examples for how to do callbacks. And, uh, you know, you can have nonced execution. You can have sequence execution. Um, so Axler Network by itself guarantees kind of unordered delivery of messages, right? And you can on top of that, build various application layer properties to get ordering of messages, to get like callbacks, to get I don't know, encrypted messages and so on and so forth. And so those are all like application layer protocols. And like we gave a bunch of examples how to instantiate those. Okay, interesting. Um, yeah, so I want to come back a little bit to the security aspect. And so what are, where are the, where are the security risks? I, I guess like every, you know, there's there's liquidity being held um, in Axelar. And, you know, if you go to Axelar scan, like you've got all the liquidity pools there. Is that liquidity on the Axelar chain or is it being held? I mean, I, no, I guess it's being held in the individual contracts on each uh, chain, right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, I, I guess, you know, looking at, you know, something like, you know, the Nomad hack recently, which was like a smart contract bug. Um, and there's been like tons of smart contract bugs. Um, yeah, I, you know, I think one of the security risks there are that uh, people should consider is that like their asset, the, the, the liquidity of the, of, the, of the pools on each individual chains like are at risk of being say hacked or something like that. I'm, I'm sure you guys mm -hmm. are doing like tons and tons and tons of auditing to make sure this doesn't happen, but it, but it is a risk. Um, what are some of the, steps you're taking to mitigate, you know, potentially, uh, you know, worst case scenario style effects? Yeah, great question. So I think security, right, like is really a function of, uh, you know, kind of a three different things. I think you have to start with the core 
design that's secure, right? So kind of um, decentralization is like the best primitive we have to guarantee security and diversification of the validators. From there, you have to have kind of robust, you know, engineering practices, and it follows by kind of operations, audits, bug bounties, and like safety mechanisms, like you said, to, to deal with worst case uh, scenarios, right? We recently actually uh, wrote a blog on security as well. Um, you can check out on our on our website. Um, and when it comes to, you know, the latter, um, A, you know, I think we're doing like rigorous audits, right? So if you look at it, like we've done like over 27 audits um, of our network, <laughs> you know, everything from the contracts to the backend. Um, B, uh, we are um, um, have functionalities that allow us, for instance, to kind of a, um, suspend a traffic from a malicious chain, right? So as an example, when, when Terra was, was going down, uh, we, we suspend the traffic from, from Terra and that, uh, you know, prevented any kind of, you know, arbitrary mint, um, you know, of those uh, functionalities, of, of those tokens, like on other chains. And then finally, on our gateways, um, they have things like rate limits, right? So our gateway actually processes up to a certain bound of messages um, that are token related uh, per given interval. And then when that limit is reached, you know, you have to wait until a reset um, of that limit. And it kind of depends on the asset and, you know, the volume and things like that. So in the worst case, if there is like a bug on the actual network, um, then uh, what can be drained sort of from, from the gateways cap. Um, and uh, yeah, we also have you know bug bounty uh, program for over two million that's running right, um, um, and uh, you know through uh, Immunify, and you can kind of take a look at that, and uh, you know that's another kind of a piece of process that that we're putting in place. Mm. And and, and you, have you guys like as part of like the security, um, so security practices? Do you have like internally? Do you have like a process, or do you have I guess like I don't know some sort of a war plan for like if a if a hack does occur, you know, we, we've done all these audits, we have these rent limits, we have this, we have like, um, have you done like dry runs for like how to mobilize the team, how to contact, you know, like so that you're you're ready if this 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 has happened at some point. Yeah, I mean, uh, lots of work, right? Like been put around those things. I don't think I want to, you know talk about like specifics of it but uh you know absolutely right like i think you know if you look at our team and like background i think building secure systems is what we've been doing for the last you know kind of a 10 years right it's not an easy thing and i think this is a kind of one of the hardest problems to build uh securely in the space right now but uh and you know i think we take it like seriously throughout the whole stack and like you said like operations and is a part of it and like we even coach our validators uh uh, even validators have things like key rotation that they have to do on the network, right? So I think this is what people don't realize, but like you want to make sure that the keys are actually refreshed and updated um, that that protect the networks. And so validators are required to do that as well. Yeah. I mean, another aspect I want to talk about here about security is the um, is the is the the validator network itself. Uh, currently, I wasn't able to get an idea of this, but like the, the Acceler token isn't uh, isn't on public markets yet. But um, I'm sh- does does it have a price already? Like, do you have an idea for like how much money is backing the um, the validator network? I don't have idea. Yeah, because the token is not rolled out, yeah. and so it's been served for you know delegated to to some validators. But you know, it's going live uh, kind of next week, and um, you know, I think from there, kind of the market will will dictate it. But I think one mm-hmm. thing to note on that. Um, I think while everybody sort of, you know, talks about like the price of Axel and things like that, I think with things like, you know, interchain security, right, the security across different networks uh, can actually be shared, right, where like Axel network can borrow security from other networks that it connects, it can lend security to other networks that may be smaller and things like that. And so I think we're going to start seeing more and more of that where like the value that we transfer kind of actually is directly related to the security of some of the networks that we transfer it from and, you know, we can borrow the security from them through this interchain security properties. Mm. So, yeah. So like if, you know, if the, co- if, you know, the Cosmos hub uh, after it enables interchain security, say has like, you know, two or 300% the security of the average, um, the average Cosmos chain, or I don't know, like let's say osmosis starts doing shared security. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you would, 
you would consider doing shared security in order to increase the security of, of Axelar and, and, and sort of boost its security profile relative to those other chains? Yeah, oh, for sure, right? Like I think uh, for chains that have a lot of traffic, right, or have a lot of, uh, you know, benefit from Axelar, uh, they're all going to be interconnected. You know, one one will borrow security, one will lend security in like different, uh, different combinations. So, um, you know, like Osmosis, for instance, as well, like I think there's going to have to be some type of a shared security across Axelar and Osmosis, given how much traffic will get there. Um, so I think it's it, like the whole ecosystem is going to be more, uh, working as one when it comes to, you know, economic security as opposed to these diverse uh, individual, um, you know, security based on like one token or one asset. Yeah, I think that's one of the most interesting things that I'm anxious to see play out over the next couple of years is um, this, this idea of like meshed security across different ecosystems and different networks and Certainly, interchain security is like one step in that direction. But as other chains also enable shared security, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how like those network dynamics play out, um, and 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 also sort of in the cross chain world, right? Um, yeah, I want I want to talk about user experience a little bit because uh, I know that's something you're also kind of interested in and passionate about. But um, what's the what's the opportunity here for um, for MEV because the, the validators are, in effect, ordering transactions uh, as they see them come in in their mempool. Um, you know, are, are there MEV opportunities on Axelar? And have you seen any of that activity already? Um, yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to cross-chain, you know, MEV kind of gets to, you know, the next level in some sense, right? You, you can have MEV, you know, sort of on Axelar, right? And like relaying mechanisms and things like that. I think inevitably MEV needs to be solved like at the application layer, right? Um, through things like, you know, commit and reveal uh, protocols and we're actually, you know, working and uh, kind of have worked on, the, um, you know, some some designs there. Um, we haven't seen it yet, or at least not that I know, um, but, you know, yeah, probably start seeing it at some point and we'll have to, we'll have to solve it, but not at the network layer. I think this thing will have to be solved at the edges. Hmm. So, so you are are you of the of you of the opinion that like Axelar shouldn't, um, you know, should let MEV like the market sort of you know play out, or should Axelar take a role in preventing MEV from happening? What's your are you pro MEV or, or, or against MEV? Um, I think it needs to be at the application decision, right? I think um, so at Axelar Network. You know, we, we can solve it uh, if we need to, and we actually can solve it very efficiently because we have this, you know, kind of multi-party computation. So you can actually efficiently deploy like a multi-party kind of encrypt and decrypt uh, protocols and Excel network. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think that will, I guess, even if we solve it in Excel, I don't think that's enough to solve MEV for applications because you're still going to have MEV, you know, and, and relays, you're still going to have MEV at the you know, um, at the destination chain and things like that, right? So it, it's just like, we can solve it, but it's not enough. That's why I think in a world with multiple chains, with potentially multiple hubs, you have to solve it at the edges. <laughs> mm. um, so so solving it actually is just not going to solve the problem at the core. Okay. Yeah, so let, let, let's talk. Uh, let's talk about a little bit of the the application stuff. So what are what are people building on Axel? Like we've seen, you know, uh, we've talked about. Uh, Osmosis already, and, and obviously satellite has has been you know kind of the flagship application. Uh, what other cool things are people building with XLR? Yeah, I mean, I would say like all the applications that you have seen in this space that have any type of a product market fit are now being redesigned in a cross chain native way, right? So things like cross chain swaps, you know, cross chain borrow and lending protocols. You know, NFT, cross-chain NFT. So like Mindao launching a cross-chain NFT collection, you know, with Axler. Um, you know, you have gaming applications and things like that. So all of them are starting to think about what does my cross-chain native experience look like, right? How do I redesign my application? We have like over 100 projects like across pretty much all of the categories that are, that are building. Like in, I guess, you know, as... as you know, bridges start to become commonplace. Um, what what is the ideal future look like? You know, so 
like right now, you you know, if you if you want to move tokens from Osmosis to another chain, like you're still interacting with this kind of interface where you have to specify where you want to send it and stuff. Like, do you think that there's a future where you just go on an application like OpenSea? You know, you've got a wallet with tokens. It may be an Ethereum. It may be like an Ethereum wallet or something that's compatible with OpenSea. It may not be, and you just get to pay with whatever tokens. But in the background. You know the the those protocols that are executing transactions cross chain, making swap, etc., and moving those tokens to the wallet of the you know, to the destination address, and then like providing you with your NFT, for instance. See, like, is this the holy grail, or like, how how do you think we'll get there? And yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think the the holy grail is that as a user, having some asset you get to interact with. You know any application, any chain, with one click from your wallet, right? Like that—that's really the holy grail. Without having to think about how do I bridge, how do I move my tokens, like how do I go from one network to another, how do I pay multiple gas fees, and so on and so forth. And I think with Osmosis, you know, we're starting to get into that experience, right? Uh, that I mentioned that you know, kind of you go to Osmosis, it will give you like a deposit address, right, for asset that you want to transfer, like USDC. You can go to you know Coinbase or Binance. You can withdraw directly to this address. Um, never have to touch Ethereum, never have to pay gas on Ethereum, never have to pay, you know, gas on Axel, never have to bridge anything and like your, your asset will just arrive in this application. So we're really kind of connecting application to application directly through all the infrastructure underneath it and users can kind of go between them. So that's what I think uh, is going to happen more and more. And that's certainly the world that I want to see, right? Where people can interact with an application from multiple networks, from multiple wallets without having to think about how to do it. <laughs> Um, really yeah. one click experience what we're after. And but the competition is fierce, right? Like, you know, you, you guys are you guys are one of many protocols that um are are building interoperability solutions. Um we are one of many, but we're yeah. the only ones that sort of decentralized and secure and can scale to you know many to many connectivity, right? Um so yeah. Well, I, I think some people would 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 yeah. I, I I hear you. I think some people would also say that uh, they are decentralized and can offer like you know many. I mean, I I certainly think you guys are like in the in the top contenders to you know like you know, be. I actually encourage people to look at the report. Yeah. Like LiFi put a report right comparing you know security and other properties of different uh, you know solutions in the in the market. Uh, kind of um, you know it's pretty pretty clear there. I think <laughs> who is actually decentralized. Who put out this report? Um, LiFi. LiFi. Okay, I'll have to put that in the show notes. Okay, cool. I haven't seen that thing. Um, yeah, cool. And um, one other question I had around, yeah, around like user experience. How, how do you think we solve the fungibility, <laughs> the fungibility problem of bridge tokens? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I think the users don't have to think about bridging tokens, right? I think the next generation of applications will. Um, what I call be cross-chain native, where maybe the tokens are bridged on the back end, but they can be, you know, kind of a swapped, right, for for the right representation, or maybe the tokens are not even bridged on the back end, and you just kind of send in messages to compose the applications, right? So as an example, if you take in a cross-chain loan, you can do it by sending tokens to the destination chain and taking a loan against this asset, or you can send, you know, you can lock your token on the source chain and just send a message to the destination chain that says, you know, I lock my tokens in a contract on a source chain. Could you please authorize a loan to me on this destination chain, right? In that case, you actually don't move the tokens. You're simply moving a message that allows to execute a particular sort of user action, right, on the destination chain. Um, and so I think we're going to live more and more in that world where uh, for some applications, it makes sense to move tokens, but for a lot of applications, it makes sense only to send a message to to execute a user cross-chain activity. Okay, so I guess in this loan example, um, let's maybe try to construct an example here. So let's say we had a lending protocol on um, chain B. You have some native asset on chain uh, A, let's say USDC, um, you want to borrow some tokens over on chain B, but that chain B pool doesn't support USDC directly or natively. Uh, on chain A, you would lock your tokens, uh, send a message to chain B, say, hey, I've locked these tokens. There's my collateral. 
um, I can borrow against it, but you're never actually moving the tokens over to chain B. You're just kind of locking them as collateral somewhere else. Is that kind of what it looks like? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. That's an interesting model. Yeah. And so then, yeah, yeah, therefore, yeah, you don't need a bridged asset. You don't need to bridge assets, right? Like I think the way that I like to think about it, you can move assets to the program or you can move program to the assets, right? And like Mm. the, the model of sending, you know, messages is really a model of where you can, write your program as a message, right? You can move it to the asset, execute an action, and then return the result back to another application, um, you know, as a sequence of contract calls or, you know, user user activities. And so kind of traditionally by making users move their tokens, we kind of turn users into sort of human routers, what I call, right? <laughs> but with, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with, 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 with general message passing, we can automate all of those like user activities and mm. write them down and like abstract them and, and programs to be executed across chains. So then effectively you have, okay, this is cool. Uh, so you could have, you could effectively have some sort of a lending pool that has collateral that is represented as claims to lock tokens on like tons of different chains. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. I had, exactly. I had never thought yeah. of that. That's okay. That's kind of, that's really interesting. So, so I think that, that uh-huh. that's why I, th- I said, right, like there's going to be a paradigm shift of like what it means to build a cross-chain native application, right? Where it's it's not about like which wrapped assets you're going to list. That, that's not what it's about. It's about architecting your application in a way that can talk to other applications, other chains and send messages and kind of benefit from all of the liquidity of the whole ecosystem without mm. having to fragment it and like have users move the tokens back and forth. So this is what I call is like, cross-chain native deployments, which is what we're working on with, you know, a lot of the builders on top of Axel. Hmm. Super cool. Um, yeah, one, one like kind of side question here. When you move, let's say you move USDC, like native USDC from Ethereum uh, to Osmosis. Right now you're, you're, getting, you're getting a wrap token, um, but Osmosis will support USDC at some point. At least that's what Sunny has claimed. Well, in, in the future, then will you just get native USDC over there? Like, will Axelar be making that conversion or like kind of having a liquidity pool there that just gives you the native one? Or will you still get this kind of wrap thing? Yeah, you could definitely, you know, just do like a swap and get the native. We actually have a project um, kind of squid um, building on top of Axelar network that, that does that, right? So it uses Axelar USDC as a routing asset uh, to send messages across different chains with that Axelar wrapped USDC. But then on destination chains, it gets like swapped for the native USDC and like the message is executed, uh, but the user never, user never have to take those actions, right? Because they can be again, like coded as a message and uh, you just get like the USDC of the deepest liquidity. Mm, interesting. And I guess, uh, so right now, like USDC is is probably like the asset that gets circulated the most. I'm just looking at the total lock value and it's something like 60 million USDC um, or 68 million. And then the next asset after is like $8 million worth of wrapped ETH. So U- USCC does serve as sort of a routing asset um, in, in many right. ways, right? Yeah. That's right. Yep. Okay. Interesting. And do you think that will continue to be the case? And if that's the case, like what kind of maybe regulatory liabilities do you fall under, especially now with this, um, uh, all this, uh, talk about regulatory, um, stablecoin regulatory uh, action? Well, I mean, Axel Network itself is sort of decentralized network, right? So in the same way as, you know, you have kind of Ethereum that produces blocks to transfer messages. So in the same way, Axel, you know, produces blocks that transfer messages across chains, right? And, uh, you know, the the, the network itself and kind of the properties of it, uh, yeah kind of preserve the decentralization and security aspect of the of the underlying consensus. Hmm. I just noticed something here. So it's uh, I'm discovering this total value locked page on uh, on Axelar scan. It's quite interesting. So you've got this slide uh, over here. So it says 8 million to EVM, 82 million to Cosmos. Is that total value locked or is this transfers? Um so to you know, to I, yeah. So my guess I, I don't actually know. I would have to double check with the team, but my guess is that two EVM meaning that 
uh, it has been minted on those, you know, EVM chains from other ecosystems, right? Um, and then two Cosmos is probably from EVM, from all of the EVM to Cosmos, what has been moved. Okay. So a lot of the traffic from EVM to Cosmos is that is that what we're seeing? I think. Okay, this is an interesting indicator. This is this is interesting to see that, you know, we actually have like quite a bit of liquidity, quite a bit more, like like ten times more liquidity going or volume going from other ecosystems to the Cosmos ecosystem, and rather than the other way around. Yeah. Um, an interesting metric. Uh, I mean, it makes sense, right? Like, because I think in Cosmos, you know, like every time a new chain is added, like it needs to bootstrap itself, right? Then it needs to have liquidity. And so, you know, I think once we make a connection like that, that liquidity kind of a flow, flows in, like you have to, like it, it is a bootstrapping effectively tool for yeah. a lot of the chains that are, that are launching within Cosmos. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, um, let, last topic here. Yeah. The, you know, the, the token is going live, uh, I believe on the 27th. Uh, right. We have people asking questions here in the chat, like on which exchange will it be launched on? Uh, I don't know if you have answers to that yet, but um, yeah, talk about you know sort of the roadmap going forward as the token launches and how that's going to affect you know the validator set and, and all these things. Yeah, I mean, as the token goes live, right? Like uh, the the token on the network is a sort of a utility token, right? That you can use to to stake with validators that provide security and pay kind of gas for processing cross chain transactions. So. I think one one interesting property actually of Axel token is that the, the token is used every time you go in cross-chain without you even realizing it, right? So every time you send in like a cross-chain call from like Ethereum to Osmosis, user pays gas like in the token that they transfer, let's say USDC, but um, that fee then is taken to be paid gas fee like on Axler, on Relayers, right? On, on Osmosis kind of destination um, and same thing for, for the EVM chain. So... Um, yeah, kind of, and the token used like as a as a as a primary mechanism to um, you know to secure the network and protect it against kind of DDoS, um, you know, Sybil attacks and things like that. And um, yeah, like like in real terms, what's what's happening on the twenty seventh in terms of the because currently the validator set is I guess all the investors. Uh, in Axelar, right? Or most mostly not really. Or, no, no. I, I actually, actually most of it is community. So we we ran like a testnet, you know, for for the last year. A lot of like community validators, you know, everybody from like Cosmos Station, right, to you know Chainnode, Figment, Chorus. Um, they've been running nodes, participating in test network, and you know when they um, when they felt comfortable enough, they they uh, upgraded to the main network, and then you know some tokens were delegated to them to to run validators on the mainnet. And so, yeah, as of 27, you know, because the token is just going to be widely circulated, then anybody can delegate to any validator that they choose, um, you know, and kind of the network will adjust its sort of top performing validators based on this permissionless set um, set from there. Okay. And then at that point, also the validator set will expand because currently I think it's limited to 50 and you have plans to expand the validator set probably through governance or something like that? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a parameter, right, in the network. Um, so I think we'll gradually keep on increasing it as we uh, as we get more people, as we get more confidence and like, you know, stability of the network and things like that. Okay, well, at Interop, we're certainly uh, interested in running a validator and we've been looking into it and uh, certainly we'll, um, we'll launch a validator whenever it's, whenever it's possible. So if you're watching this and uh, you have uh, in the future <laughs> and have XLR tokens and want to stake them with us, uh, the link uh, to, to that will be in the show notes. Um, thank you, future delegators. <laughs> um, yeah, and then so then so the Axelar token will be minted on the on the main chain, and then there's this wrapped Axelar that will exist on the on all the different um, chains that you connect to as a representation. So, do you plan on having these tokens also like you know have sort of like liquidity pools on those tokens um, with ax wrapped Axelar pairs in order to um, facilitate like um, the flow of those tokens in and out. Yeah. So kind of, yeah, back to, to your point, right? Like I, I think this is going to be the first project that launches with like chain agnostic token in some sense. Right. So you can have, you know, it's representation like on Ethereum, like on Axler and other EVM chains on like Cosmos chains, right. You can move back and forth across them and it's sort of mobile. Right. Um, yeah. When it comes to, you know, like liquidity and other things, uh, you know, it is going to be public and permissionless. So I'm pretty sure there's going to be like community programs that will 
that will, uh, you know, continue making use of it and like various applications and DEXs and things like that. But we'll have to kind of wait and see. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, thanks so much, Sergey. Where, where can people go to uh, learn more about Axelar? Uh, maybe um, is there any information about the token launch that that, that you've written about or posted? And, and uh, where can people go to learn about building um, with Axelar? I think the best place to start is just go to our website, right? Axel.network. Uh, from there, we actually link to, you know, various uh, tutorials of how you can participate in, in governance, right? Or stake on the on Axel network uh, through the token, um, you know, kind of a bridge it. So all those functions are outlined there. Um, there's a blog post, um, you know, you should subscribe to our socials, like at Axel Core is the Twitter handle, sign up for Discord. There's a pretty vibrant developer community there. And uh, yeah, get engaged. Awesome. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for coming on and enjoy the rest of, uh, of uh, mainnet. And uh, yeah, we'll, um, we'll definitely uh, follow up. I think we'll have to follow up in some time um, when uh, awesome. after the token launches. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. It was, it was fun. Thanks.